You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, Zane and Kara, for leading us so well. Thank you for uh, your willingness to be with us today, and uh, we so appreciate your ministry. Um, It's interesting how um, certain songs, as familiar as they may be, uh, land on you a little differently, um, depending on what you're experiencing in life. Um, it, it's amazing to me how many times God has ministered to me through music. I think it's like the language of the soul. And um, that's why it is so important to us to gather and worship together. Um, I can be moved by a song driving down the road in my car and all those things, but um, man, when we sing those songs together and we lift our voices together and we affirm such great gospel truth, um, that's powerful, powerful stuff, y'all. Um, as a church family, and we've experienced a lot over the last couple of weeks. Uh, in fact, I was telling someone before the service, I have experienced a lot of emotional whiplash over the last couple of weeks. Uh, that The snapshot of those two weeks have been a microcosm of life itself. I mean, I've experienced deep sorrow and grief. I've experienced great joy as we've, as a church family, welcomed new life uh, into our fellowship. Ava Joy's here today, and how exciting is that, right? Uh, yeah, she's the youngest one in the group, I think, okay? Um, uh, but uh, it's just, you know, I, I conducted a funeral service on Monday. I did a wedding on Friday, and uh, everything in between uh, that we experience in life, that's the reality of us doing life together. Um, and the cool thing is, this is what I just was struck with. She would like to say a few words, by the way. Um, just right, quick, right on cue. Thank you, Gerald. Um, now, uh, you know, when you're thinking about how the, the, the words to that song, it is well with my soul, the great thing about that is it may not be well in, in your financial world right now. I get it. The economy's messed up, right? It may not be well in your relationships. It may not be well in your job life. But you can say at the same time, it is well with my soul. It's well with my soul. And in the midst of that, we sang the gospel. My sin, not in part, but the whole, nailed to the cross, right? That's why you can sing it as well with your soul. Not because the sun's shining and everything's going great and the bills are all paid and everybody in the family's healthy. No, you can sing, even in the midst of those difficult seasons, it is well with my soul. Um, So thank you. I want to echo what Griff said and say thank you for those who uh, helped serve last night especially. Uh, I uh, had a call of duty to make a pastoral visit to Globe Life Park in Arlington last night. Um, The Rangers were not nearly as encouraged with my visit as I had hoped they would be. Um, so again, it's that microcosm of, uh, you know, of life itself. I've been thankful more times than you can imagine that my salvation does not depend on the sports teams that I cheer for. Uh, I would be in bad, bad shape most of the time. Uh, but uh, thank you for those who served. It's uh, really important, and we so value uh, your efforts. Uh, and many of you, week in and week out, I mean, you have, unless you've served in children's ministry recently over there, uh, man, uh, 
do we need a new building or what? Um, and yeah, just pray for all of that as it comes to uh, completion uh, over these next few weeks, Lord willing. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9. Uh, I have no guarantees about my voice. I wasn't sure about the early service. I'm really not sure about this service. Uh, If I have to cough, hopefully I'll uh, have the the forethought to turn this thing off before I blow you out of the room. But um, at any rate, that's where we are. And I know a lot of you dealing with the same kind of stuff. Uh, We've been in a a study of the Gospel of John for a number of weeks now. We started actually last December, going on a year ago now. Took a brief break in the summer for a summer in the Psalms, and we returned uh, to the Gospel of John, and now we're here in the middle of chapter 9. This is uh, the account of a man born blind who was healed by Jesus. And uh, you may be at least marginally familiar with that account. And what we find here is really, uh, in this middle section especially, Uh, We're going to find religion versus true faith in Christ in many ways. You know, when you think about it in our culture, it's not difficult to find people who resent religious people or what they would maybe describe as organized religion. And I know there's a lot of nuance to that conversation. If you you talk to a lot of people today, they'll say, oh, I'm I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay, and and by that, they may mean uh, I believe in uh, a God or I believe in gods, and so I'm spiritual. Um, uh, And, and of course, I know, you know, even the term religion is broadly misunderstood a lot of times. In fact, it's not lost on me that you may be here this morning, and you would say, I've experienced a great deal of hurt and even some trauma at the hands of organized religion. Uh, I understand that. It's a reality of the world in which we live. Um, Human structures are all imperfect because they're made up of imperfect human beings. Um, Church polity, all of those things. I mean, you know, there's various ways to look at the way a church is structured and organized and the way it functions and all of that. And and so whenever a family does life together, much like your family at home, uh, there's going to be times when when it's a bit challenging because we are all... Uh, broken, sinful human beings at our core, uh, saved by the grace of God, I hope. Uh, And so more and more uh, reflecting uh, who Jesus is in our lives. But as someone uh, whom the world would consider a religious person, because uh, if I'm, you know, if it's understood that I'm a pastor or a preacher or whatever, uh, typically people will say, you know, he's a religious person. It's easy to get defensive when I hear someone Uh, who lumps uh, religious people all together and makes broad assumptions, forms opinions based upon a limited experience. Now, statistics show that people in America who describe themselves as religious, I know that doesn't necessarily mean that they're followers of Jesus, they consider themselves religious, tend to be happier, healthier, and live longer lives, give far more money away than non-religious people would. I mean, you think about the the different organizations and things that have been formed out of what many would call organized religion. Hospital systems, for example, and a number of different charity organizations and all those things have roots to um, what a lot of people would call religion. And And since most people who would describe themselves as religious in America at least profess to be Christians, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, uh, but we can, we can make some kind of a connection to the gospel. 
as people who are more focused on giving to others than on pleasing themselves would tend to be uh, happier, find some level of fulfillment in that. People who sense peace with God uh, tend to uh, live according to biblical principles or generally healthier and live longer, okay? And I'm not, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel today, okay? If anyone ever told you if you committed your life to Jesus Christ, then everything was going to become peachy king from then forward, they've lied to you. Okay, they've lied to you. That's not what we're saying. Uh, and, and in fact, we all know uh, that there is a dark side to religion. Um, some of the, the history's worst atrocities were done in the name of religion. Think 9-11. Jihadists were behind the attacks on the World Trade Centers and on the Pentagon and those things. Doing that in the name of religion in an effort to earn a spot in paradise or a, a level of, of paradise or, or whatever. That's all in the name of religion. And so as we look at this text today, understand that just as surely as the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ can lead uh, an individual to peace with God and love for others, at the same time, self-righteous religion can lead to arrogance, judgmentalism, and hard-heartedness. And what's the difference? It's going to be clearly on display in this text today. The difference is found in two key contrasts, the grace of God versus self-effort and an internal transformation versus external conformity. If it is the love and the grace of God that transforms my heart through the perfect righteousness and full forgiveness of Jesus Christ being applied to me by the Holy Spirit, I am more likely to be humbled by that, to be moved to love others in the way that I've been loved. But if I'm working hard to conform to an external set of expectations, which I believe will make me righteous, then I am more likely to be stressed Angry, resentful, arrogant, judgmental, and pharisaical. So the more man-made the external set of expectations is, the more pharisaical our religion will be. In today's passage, we see the Pharisees in all of their pharisaical glory. And we also see the transforming power of Jesus Christ at its best. So I hope that you'll join me there. John chapter 9, we're going to take it from verse 13 down through verse 34. So it's a pretty big section of, of John's narrative here. And so I hope that you'll follow along as I read. They brought the, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. This was the man who was born blind, whom Jesus healed uh, in our text last week. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Here comes one of their rules. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Now Sabbath is important in scripture. We're going to see that in a moment. But they had attached all these different uh, rules and regulations to that. Okay, And so they, they found him in direct violation of some of their rules and regulations. So he clearly can't be from God because he violates the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. 
Verse 18 says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had been received his sight, had been, uh, been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he can talk for himself. Uh, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, whenever you see that word Christ, think Messiah. If, if, they, if they proclaim him to be the Messiah, he is to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. (laughs) I love the bit of sarcasm in his voice at this point. He goes, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) What a great question. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, and, the day, and, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. First thing I want you to notice in our text here today is this twisted view of Sabbath. And not unlike the day in which we live, there is uh, still plenty of confusion about Sabbath about the observance of Sabbath. What should we do? What should we not do? How do we practice Sabbath? A lot of people mistakenly think that, that Sabbath today is just talking about a particular day of the week uh, as opposed to the practice of Sabbath and all those things. We're not going to launch into a full-on discussion about that necessarily, but I do want you to see uh, the confusion here in this twisted view of Sabbath. This distorted religion of the Pharisees is seen in this distorted view of Sabbath. And in response to this man's account of his remarkable miracle, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, remember, was given by God to people as a blessing. He set aside one day out of seven for rest, for worship, so that we might focus our hearts and our lives more fully on the Lord, might take a break from the stress and the pressures of our normal daily lives, and and really, most importantly, express our utter dependence upon God. Particularly in our modern world, we can take on this attitude that the world will come to a screeching halt if I take a a day off. And when you practice Sabbath, what you're saying is, Lord, I recognize that's not true. I can, in fact, take a day off. And and the the church will continue marching forward. (laughs) I mean, you know, God doesn't need us to sustain his world, okay? Okay. And that's an, it's an expression of that. It's much like uh, when we just sang a moment ago, we saw, sang an anthem of dependence upon God. We said, Lord, I need you. I need you. And if you ever reach a place where you think you don't need God, you're in a real bad spot. You're in a bad spot. 
And so they, what they had done is they had taken uh, something that God had given as a blessing and they had turned it into something else. Uh, the Pharisees had taken this blessing from God, turned it into an opportunity to earn and display self-righteousness while also making it nearly, and a nearly impossible burden for others with detailed lists of what is, what is uh, forbidden. Included in this list was making mud since they considered it a form of work. So one of the hallmarks of self-righteous religion is that it causes us to lose perspective. And some of you know my testimony enough to know that in my early years, I grew up in kind of a a tribe of the church that focused on a lot of external things similar to that of the Pharisees. It was made clear to us there were certain things that we could not do. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do this. We don't do that. And so, and, and it's not hard to find people who largely view the Bible as God's big rule book. That's essentially how they see it. And they see God as some sort of a cosmic killjoy who has, you know, he's just, uh, he's consumed with like taking all the fun out of life. And that's why he's given us this big book full of rules that we have to keep. Things you, you should do, things that you can't do, things you're not, all that kind of thing. That, that is, that's the foundation of Phariseeism. We don't do these certain things. And so I want you to think about the process. This is how twisted their view. The process that takes spitting in the dirt to make a small amount of mud to anoint someone's eyes, weighs it against giving sight to a man born blind, forced to beg for a living, and then concludes, what a terrible sin. That's how distorted their view of Sabbath really was. And then I want you to notice that there was division over Jesus. This is not, this is not, this is, this is very common in our day as well. I don't know about your experience, but I've had multiple conversations with people and you can talk about God. But then when you start talking about Jesus, it seems to change things. Because you, you, you can be talking about God and maybe at the same time be thinking about two different things. Some people think when they talk about God, they're just talking about a higher being, a higher power. They'll say the man upstairs or, or whatever else. There's some kind of cosmic force out there. Don't really know what it is, but that's what I call God. One of our former presidents a few years ago gave a speech and prayed to the God of our own making, I think it was, something like that. I'm like, what in the world is that? that that's, that's humanity in its depravity is what that is. Yeah, we, we determine who God is and what he is to us and that sort of thing. Okay, but then when you start talking about Jesus... Things change, right? And some people would say, well, Jesus is, was just a good teacher. He was a created being. He was just a prophet. He was just this. He was just that. No, that's why I always say, if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to discern whether someone you're having a conversation with is just on the same page as you are spiritually and, and talking about Jesus, ask them what they believe about the deity of Jesus Christ. Because you'll find that that is a dividing point many times. And so... Not unlike our day, there was some division over Jesus here, for sure. It says not all the Pharisees were, uh, they, they weren't as extremely distorted in their perspective. So others said this, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So understand this, some self-righteous uh, religious people are more open to reason than others. Also, the coming of Jesus always brings division between those who are open to hearing him and following him, and those who fully reject and refuse him. And I'll tell you, next week as we wrap up John chapter 9, we'll hear Jesus explain how his coming into the world brings division. 
as those who think that they can see are, are really blinded by his coming. Uh, while those who know of their blindness have their eyes opened by the dawning of his light. And so here we see uh, this division in action as those who are the most arrogant, the most self-righteous, the most self-assured, the most convinced of their own ability to see clearly are actually totally blind to the light of the world at work in their midst. And on the other hand, those who see their own need, like the blind man, or those who are a bit more humble, perhaps, like those willing to consider Jesus, are more able to see the light. And maybe in your own personal life, in a, in a personal relationship of yours, you've seen kind of this progression. Maybe there was someone that you've been praying for for a long time, and early on they were completely closed to the thought or the idea of faith in Jesus Christ or considering anything that, that you held to as a follower of Jesus. But then over time, over time you saw something happen. Something was changing, something was shifting, uh, where at one point they were completely closed off to any conversations about Jesus. Now they're at least open to a conversation about Jesus. And I I know for me, I can look back, I can think of some people that I prayed for for a long time, and I, I was ready in my flesh to say, they will never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then I look up and I see the miracle of the grace of God at work in their lives. I had a couple of former students, when I was a youth pastor years ago, I was fully convinced they were going to spend the rest of their lives in the state penitentiary. I'm not kidding. And one of those guys became a pastor, of all things. I mean, you just, don't ever discount what God can do by his Holy Spirit and through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see that, this division here over Jesus. But in them with that, I want you to see a growing confession of faith. In the midst of this division over who Jesus is, the Pharisees in charge of the synagogue turned to the healed man to get his opinion. And this is where it gets really good. I love this. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. Now here we can see already that this man's faith is growing. He's coming to a better understanding of who Jesus is. Not yet come to a full understanding of faith in Jesus as the Christ, son of the living God. And yet here he shows much more insight than he did earlier. If you remember from last week, uh, he referred to Jesus simply as the man called Jesus. Okay, that, that would tell us that he had very little understanding as to who Jesus was. Maybe he had heard about him and those kind of things. It was the man called Jesus. Now, he understands now that a man who can perform such a miracle must at the very least be a prophet, right? The, the way Jesus did this miracle was even uh, reminiscent of a prophet of old, like something Ezekiel or Elisha might do. And while Jesus is certainly much more than a prophet, he is not less than a prophet, So the man is beginning to see, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And then I want you to notice in the midst of all this, this compelling case for Christ. So the division over Jesus leads to this in-depth investigation into the healing of the blind man which in turn leads to this compelling case for Christ. And so what we have here is kind of like this kangaroo court in a sense. Skeptics of Christianity have often dismissed the miracles of Jesus as just some sort of wish fulfillment by those who believed in him. It's like mind over matter, psychosomatic healings, all those kind of things. Those are known in many traditions around the world. So if a person wants to be well, then it would be suggested that you have to project that mentally, right? It's like, you know, the old 
positive mental attitude sort of thing. And it's wrong having a positive attitude, but this is very different from that. Besides, we all know people with profound disabilities who would want very much and would wish nothing more than to be well, physically made whole. So I think that whole line of thinking is not only insulting to Jesus and his power, but also to people with disabilities. Now, others have said that what is lacking in the Gospels is a careful investigation of the miracle reports by those who were not followers of Jesus. You get into any kind of apologetic conversation with some people, and you'll find people who will do everything they can to discredit the Gospels because they would say, well, I mean, we can't take these for, for, for anything because they're just all written by his followers, like by his fans, essentially, is what they're saying. Okay, so the argument contends that there's reporting bias, Right? Uh, I know some of you in listening to or watching the Rangers broadcast on TV over the last couple of games have like, John Smoltz is driving me nuts, okay, because he seems to like the Diamondbacks way too much, you know. It's like there's, there seems to be some sort of bias there that offends you as a clearly intelligent Ranger fan, right, okay. I get that, that's kind of what they would say about the Gospels here. They're just like, I mean, come on. And yet, what we have here is an account of a public known investigation of a miracle of Jesus carried out by what we could call his hostile uh, opponents and not by his disciples. So the Pharisees choose to disbelieve this man's own testimony about himself in the same way that they chose to reject Jesus' testimony about himself. And so to verify the man's claims, they call in the man's parents, right, your Honor, our first witness, first witnesses would be this man's parents, okay? You now, let's, let's take the stand, okay? And so, uh, now, the, now the man's parents are not followers of Jesus. They're not ready to, to proclaim that he's the Messiah. Uh, they, they're brought in under pressure, in fact, uh, to not be seen as believers in Jesus. They know that a public profession of faith in Jesus at that time will get them expelled from the synagogue. That's why John makes it clear here in his writing. So they know that this public profession would would be very costly to them. And so they carefully weigh their words. Still, despite the fact that they are not disciples of Jesus and and, and this intense social pressure on them, the parents still offer enough testimony to establish the truth of this wonderful healing. What do they say? Just what a credible witness is supposed to say in a court of law. Say what you know. Say what you know to be true. Don't give us conjecture. Don't give us third-hand, second-hand information. Tell us what you know to be true. And so that's what they did. They said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Now, that's very important at this point in the dialogue. While his parents go on to deny knowing how he was healed or who healed him, in fact, this opening statement is sufficient. And then the Pharisees summon the healed man back and pressure him to deny the truth. And yet he very strongly and cleverly confirms the case in support of Christ. So when they tell him, uh, we, we know that this man is a sinner, he responds. I love this. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I, I'm not qualified to speak to that, is basically what he's saying. Uh, that, that's not something that I can know with certainty. One thing I do know, and just like his parents, he tells what he knows. And I love this testimony of the gospel. Though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> I don't know about you, but there have been many times over my life since the time I committed my life to Jesus Christ, when I consider just the, 
uh, the amazing grace of God, the beauty of the gospel itself, the scandal of the cross, all the things, uh, I'm left to say, I don't fully understand it. All I know is that I once was blind and now I see. That's what this man says. So the moral character of Jesus could certainly be debated. But what cannot be debated at this point is the reality of this man's healing. And so the Pharisees then press him to repeat his story. What they're hoping is that he will change some aspect of it. This is not uncommon in a court of law. You're being cross-examined, something like that. What what they're going to do is they're going to try to get you to, 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 to mix up the facts so that your testimony can be considered, uh, it's not credible. Oh, you're changing your story now, huh? Oh, that's not what you said before. That's, that's essentially what they're doing here. Uh, and so they want to discredit him. They're desperate. He's calm. I, I like to think he's a bit sarcastic because that's one of my spiritual gifts. Um, so he says, he says, I- I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be one of his disciples? This is too much for these Pharisees, man. They're just like, the very thought of becoming disciples of Jesus is so repugnant to them that they respond by saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. I used to use this passage when I was a speech teacher, and I would ask my students to read this text, but read it with, uh, uh, you know, the inflection and, and maybe, you know, put more into it than just a simple reading. And I loved hearing my students, like, use their pharisaical voices when they said those words. We are disciples of Moses. I mean, it's like, just feel the hypocrisy dripping off these guys, right? Now, what we probably miss is the extent of the arrogance in this response. What you have to understand in the cultural context of this, of, of this passage is that it was highly unusual for religious leaders in Jesus' day to identify themselves as disciples of Moses. They almost always identified themselves of a current living rabbi who was their teacher, like Gamaliel or perhaps Nicodemus. But here, they are desperate for the highest holy ground for their self-righteousness. It's like, guys, let's take this to another level. We're disciples of Moses, right? So they say they don't know where Jesus comes from, which is, it's both a lie. Jesus is from Nazareth, but it's more true than they even realize Jesus is from heaven, right? We've already seen that in in John's gospel here. So far from being pressured to cave by this insulting and arrogant response from the Pharisees, the healed man is actually strengthened in his confidence as he responds with this powerful insight. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. In other words, maybe you guys aren't as smart as you think you are. It's an amazing thing. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He is clearly beginning to see. For him to have the ability to open my eyes, eyes that have been blinded since birth, he must clearly have a connection with God in some form. May not fully get it yet, but he's beginning to see. So now this man's faith in Jesus has grown from the man called Jesus to a prophet, to someone who is from God, and someone who is a worshiper of God who does his will. You see what's happening here? He's getting very close to the truth. 
too close for the Pharisees' liking, who respond in anger with a condemning conclusion to their proceedings. So let's check that out. This condemning conclusion. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So notice how arrogant and judgmental their conclusion is. It's at this point it becomes clear to us that the evidence doesn't matter. Uh, The man's clear testimony, sound reasoning doesn't matter. After all, he was born in utter sin. How how do they know this? Do they have any evidence? Uh, All all they have is their self-righteous presumption, their arrogant dismissal of him. Their arrogance has been evident throughout this trial. Earlier, they had pressured the healed man by saying, give glory to God. Now, what's up with that? It's actually an echo of Joshua's words to Achan from, from Achan's, uh, after Achan's sin as recorded in Joshua chapter 7. Remember, Achan was the one who took of some of the, the forbidden uh, the booty, you might say. Okay, hid it in his tent. Remember that? It caused the people of Israel to lose that next battle at Ai and all, it's all that. Okay, that, that, that's, it's an echo of that actually. Th- this is how toxic religion works. Self-righteous religion. They see themselves as standing in the place of Joshua as the righteous revealer of truth. Please understand this. Self-righteousness leads to arrogance, which leads to presumption, and finally, and finally to judgmental condemnation of others regardless of their guilt or innocence. And so that begs a question today. How does Jesus save people from religion and themselves? Now, let me be clear what I mean when I say religion. Religion fundamentally is man's attempt to get to God, okay? Man's attempt to get to God, and it can be through any number of things. That's fundamental. It's very basic, but, man, the gospel, biblical Christianity, is God coming down to man. God coming down to man. So how does Jesus save us from this toxic self-righteous arrogance. He begins by showing us our need, which is what he did for this blind man. And we'll see it even more clearly next week. The blind man thought his greatest need was for physical sight, which makes sense, right? But as the man comes to see the blindness of the Pharisees, who are convinced that they alone see clearly, he actually comes to see his own blindness and his own need, which prepares him for his second encounter with Jesus that we'll see next week. Jesus saves us by showing us that we cannot save ourselves. Jesus brings us to the light by showing us our own darkness. He brings us to sight by showing us our own blindness. The more clearly that we see our own weaknesses, the more we turn to him for strength. The more we turn to him for for true righteousness, the more we see the filthy rags of our own righteousness and what it truly is. I think back to personal evangelism classes that I took in seminary and those things. I mean, you're basically learning how effective ways to share the gospel. One of the first things they will tell you many times is you must first help a person understand their need. I mean, it's one thing to say you need to be saved. (coughs) Excuse me. One thing, but that leaves them with the question, saved from what? And in their mind, they're not drowning. If they are, maybe they're saying, well, I'm drowning in debt, so what I need is a million bucks. No, 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 your need is you have a need for a Savior. And so that's, that's exactly what Jesus does here. 
He shows us that we cannot save ourselves. And I'm going to close by just sharing with you, and some of you are familiar with this text, but I want to share with you the testimony of another famous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, a disciple of Gamaliel, who became the Apostle Paul. He wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 14. He says, look out for the dog. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And what he's about to do is he's about to roll out this amazing religious resume that would be impressive to anyone in that day. Here's what he says. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Religious. (laughs) Of the people of Israel. Religious. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Religious. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Religious. As to the law, a Pharisee. Religious. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Religious. He did that in the name of religion. He thought he was doing God a favor. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Then he says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. (coughs) So Paul says there to the Philippians, all these religious merit badges that you see, my impressive religious resume, I'm ready to flush it all. In fact, if you're familiar with the King James Version translation of this text, it says dung. He considers it all dung. It's loss. It's rubbish. So may the Lord be gracious to each of us to show us that all we could possibly count as our own righteousness is worthless garbage and that Christ alone is surpassing worth. May he lead us by his spirit to put no confidence in our flesh, but to press on to lay hold of Christ Jesus more and more. May we nail our spiritual merit badges, our religious merit badges to his cross, laying down the false security of our self-righteousness and be clothed forever in his. One of the most beautiful biblical pictures of the gospel is the fact that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we trade in prison garments of sin for robes of righteousness. For robes of righteousness. Robes of righteousness that we can't earn. 
that, that, that we don't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's Christ in my place. And so with that, let's bow our heads, close our eyes together for just a moment this morning. I don't know what God may be saying to you today by his Holy Spirit through his word. Maybe you're someone here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, I, if I'm completely honest, I'm probably more like the Pharisees than I am this man born blind. When I really pause and think about the things that I do and why I do them, I'm kind of on this self-righteous track of trying to earn my way. Trying to be better than most, trying to do more good than bad, so that hopefully when it's all said and done, God will look at me and say, you passed. All based upon my own self-righteousness. I just want to tell you, biblically speaking, that is a terrible plan. Because even on our best day, we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. In your own strength, your own power, you and I, we cannot do enough good to earn our salvation. We can't avoid enough bad to earn our salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So if you're here today and you're in that place where maybe it's like, I, I, I'm uncertain of my relationship with God. I, I, I'm hoping that at, at the end I get an attaboy, but I, I'm just, I'm not sure. I firmly believe on the authority of God's word today that you can leave here with assurance based upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. Would love to share with you from the word of God what it means to be in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In just a moment, together, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Jace is going to come lead us, one of our pastors, and I just want to simply say it is important to us that your testimony be one of faith in Christ. We practice a close communion, not a closed communion. So it's not required that you be a member of our church, but because of what this supper represents and what it means to us, and Jace will explain this more, it is important to us that your testimony be one of faith in Jesus Christ. So I want us to, to worship together through this time. Very important. It's part of the family. And Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have given us credible accounts through the gospels of the life and the ministry, the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I thank you. I pray, God, that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they would be drawn to you today. Lord, I pray that we would turn our hearts toward you now as we worship together. And this time, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.